We confess this morning that we have done a lot of our life on our own. And we ask this morning that you lead us away from that. That you show us yourself. And as you are so kind to us forever, that you take us and put us where we're supposed to be. In your heart. Bless this time, Lord. We pray. Amen. Well, good morning. So, eight to ten year olds, you're out of here. Leave. We love you. So, we've got a big chore today. We're going to try to, from the word, answer the question how does Christ live in you? I'd like you to open your Bibles or your apps to uh, Galatians 2.20. This is our one verse that we've studied these past times. It has two parts. So I need to rewind and review what we learned last time about this. And the last time was from the first portion of the verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. That part. And we had to grab that part because it's the foundation for the second part, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We can't have the second without the first. We learned that you, if you are saved, you are not a sinner. And we choked on that a little bit. We are a new creation with new affections. We're seen by God through the window of Christ's righteousness. Our sin is paid for in full. Now I could go on and on and on about the things that change because everything changed when Christ arose. Everything changed. The whole universe changed. But we know for certain that the old you died and was then resurrected in Christ. God does not see me as a sinner. And we figured out that it is not wise. No, wait, that doesn't communicate well. It is flat dumb to call ourselves something that the Lord himself does not call us. We therefore learn to say, not to say, I'm a sinner. We say, I was a sinner. You saw me plead with you to embrace that simple truth. That the old you, the old nature is no more. Let it go to its death. And don't hang on to or embrace its corpse. It's trash. It's going to smell bad soon. Let it go. Rejoice that it is gone. I told you that you can't live the Christian life. I told you that Jesus is not some cheerleader cheering you on from the sidelines. Go, buddy. He lives in you. And this astounding truth 
that's in Galatians 2.20, that Christ is in you is the antidote for the biggest problem in church world, which I have chosen to call the drift. The drift is a stale, cold, joyless, boring, faithless, room temperature type life that we fall into when we don't live like Christ is in us. I just coined that phrase, that's not anywhere. I coined the phrase we're chinos, we're Christians in name only. But we got too many people from Chino, so probably better change that. (laughs) To exposit what it means to have Christ in you, the hope of glory, to demystify and um, and take the intimidation out of the mandate for holiness in Matthew 548, which is this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? To try to, to try to make that real for us and to speak to how the Holy Spirit actually leads us and how he does not lead us, that's a mouthful, my friends. That's a chore for more than one sermon. So I've chosen just three facets to present, I hope and pray, the essence of what it means for Christ to live in us. Let's just say that there's a boatload of scriptural truth on the cutting room floor today. Because the carnage that I have seen in our churches over the years from the drift, I have, as you may be able to tell, become a bit passionate about this subject. its impact on our lives can be incredible, beyond anything you can imagine, and it's simple. Okay, let's start with here. First, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the big picture, right? First, it's time for a history lesson. Where does this Christ in you concept come from? The backstory of that history will, will outline God's infinite, age-old loving plan, and it will help to make sense of this. How, how are you, how are we believers in the 2000s? How are we, how did we die with Christ? How are we crucified with Christ and then resurrected with him? How does that happen? This is gonna help. John Murray, who wrote the book, I think I talked about it, it's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied, it is a brilliant book, wrote this beautifully in 1955. He says, we can see the breadth of the union with Christ, you'll hear union with Christ, that's Christ in you. We can see the breadth of that and how far back and how far far forward it goes. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now this is, this is just so cool. Here's a little mini expository sermon on that verse. 
we see twice that we were not just carved out as some separate group, these people and these people. We were chosen in Christ. We see where every spiritual blessings come from. Where's that? The heavenly places. And that will be important in a few minutes. We see that, that holy and blameless idea, not as some higher level, difficult Christian ideal, but as normative Christian life. We see that as far back as we can go in tracing salvation to its fountain, we find union with Christ. Christ living in you is not something that's been tacked on or invented or God came up with later. It was there at the outset. Before the world as we know it even began, that is a pretty impressive history. It could be hard to grasp how the word tells us we were crucified with, then resurrected with Christ. But the history lesson here shows us that the chosen people of God, past, present, future, your future, were all deemed by the Father to be in Christ. And that from the very start. So, get this, when Jesus gave his life as a ransom and was resurrected, that same group that God has placed under the Son of God, which all of us, was effectively united with Christ and part of his church, his body, in his death. We were all in that crowd when he died. Even though we weren't born yet, that is astounding. But that makes more sense of it. It's easier to see. Yeah, when he, when he guaranteed our salvation, we might have realized it later, but that's where it happened for us. We did die with him. We were resurrected with him. <clears throat> so the scripture teaches us that when you're saved, he wakes you up from the dead to understand that, that you are in Christ and he, and he is in you. It was always so. And this just is, this is just a basic biblical truth. If the old you is dead, something has to replace it. It is the Holy Spirit, also known as the Spirit of Christ. That takes residence in you. That's what comes in where the old you left. This is Christianity 101 stuff. Nothing new here. He gives you new affections. I'm not sure it came from, and I know it's not good grammar, so grammarians cut me a break on this. But we've used the phrase over the years that when God comes in and changes your heart, he changes your wanter. You want different things than you did before. Only God can do that. Those are the things that happen in salvation. He makes sense when you read the word. I, was, I read the Bible since I could read. And then in, at 17 when I got saved, it's like, Oh, I get it now. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Before Christ, we were children of wrath. We were lost, we were blind, we were rebellious. Regeneration opened your eyes to God's kingdom for the first time. 
Now, theologians and writers, smart people, have exposited the scripture to describe the dual-natured universe in a lot of different ways. You may have heard of having a vertical versus a horizontal perspective. That is seeing, thing from, seeing things from God's vantage point versus you down here in the muck and mire. Um, Solomon uses the picture of the things on earth as the things under the sun. When you read that in Ecclesiastes, that's the world below. That's where we live. Paul calls it this present age. Dan Stone and David Gregory, who wrote that book I talked about, um, the rest of the gospel, describe the two coexisting worlds pictured as separated by a line. As believers, we live in an unseen and eternal life in the middle of the seen and temporal world. So I give you this analogy because it has been helpful to understand where we live and how we're supposed to live and how you live down here with a, with a heavenly perspective. First, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. You have to turn there, I'll read it. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The line illustrates that above it is the invisible, is the eternal. It's the heavenly places where all the spiritual blessings are. It is God's residence, it is where Christ resides. I want to be there. It is ultimate reality, it is complete, it is whole, it is finished, it is perfect. Below the line is visible, but temporary. It is the created realm of matter and appearance. It has a beginning and an end. It has good and evil, it has need and plenty. It has all the drama we deal with every day. The verse that best illustrates this is Hebrews 10, 14. It's perfect. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, do you hear the timeless perfected forever? But yet, that same people are being sanctified. What's up with that? This is it. Above the line, we are perfected forever. We're finished work in Christ. We're complete. That's how he sees us. Below the line, we're still needy. We still sin. We're still becoming more like Christ. But the line helps us understand that. You get a, you get a picture for why that is. By the Holy Spirit only, we can look through the seen, our world, to the unseen. And that is how Jesus lived. When the man stretched out his withered hand, Jesus didn't see that disability as ultimate. 
When they brought him the loaves and fishes, he didn't see that insufficiency as ultimate. When they brought him the little dead girl, he did not see death as ultimate. He saw his father's plan. He saw through those things to what his father was doing. He lived above the line. We're to do the same. God has permanently joined himself to your spirit. They are now one. That is the whole concept of Christ in you. Or it is described in other places, your union with Christ. Live that out, beloved, and life crackles with God's electricity. We don't, um, we don't have a separation between God and us. We don't clamor for plans and programs and things that will microwave our faith. We just live out that union where we're at, where he plants us, with the adequacies and the inadequacies he has allowed us to have. He is with us. He operates in you. You rest in him. Simple, huh? Second thing is the mandate we read in Scripture to be holy. The mandate for holiness. It is, it's painfully easy to see the depth of our indwelling sin. Can I get an amen on that one? I laughed. I guess sometimes we don't see the depth of our indwelling sin, and that's painful for everybody around us. But either way, we still have to deal with it. But that sin is the very reason we are so quick to label ourselves as sinners. This is also why we can easily give up on the notion or this command to be holy. And I'm going to confess to you here, I'm kind of ashamed of this. I've read that command for years and years and years. It's in different spots, too. And I have in my heart gone, that's that's a bridge too far. That's just not going to happen. Let's go to the next one. So effectively, I have shelved what God is clearly telling me to do and just put it aside and ignored it, made it dusty on the top of the shelf. Because I thought... That was just too much. That was, that was wrong. That has got to stop. That has to stop for all of us. And right now, it is an imperative like any other, but it is integral to our sanctification. It is the very reason we are still drawing breath on this earth, because God has something to glorify himself in us. He has something to do in us through his son, Jesus Christ. Not through us. So I cannot ignore that. You've been raised to new life in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you, right? 
the entire purpose of your sanctification is, I don't want to bust your balloon here, it is not to make you happy. It is to conform you to the image of Christ. Period. Amen. Now, that glorifies Him, which is the big picture. But I'm also going to tell you what it does for you. That's the icing on the cake. We'll get to that. Before you fall into the trap that I have done, and I've repented of it, (laughs) before you fall into the trap of thinking that this holiness deal is out of reach for you, I want you to hang on to two facts, facts that you have already learned in this teaching. One, sin is no longer your master, it says. You are dead to sin. It does not dominate you any longer. That doesn't mean we don't deal with it. We do. We're still in the flesh. It's still going to be a problem. We're going to deal with it till we die, but less and less and less. There's a huge difference between just surviving a bout of sin, a tough time, a dry spell, and sin absolutely dominating you. Those are two different things. It is one thing for sin to live in us. It is another thing for us to live in sin. That that quote is Mr. Murray's, and it's brilliant. Second, second fact, and again, you already know this, we do not sanctify ourselves. This is not some self-motivation, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get with the program, and get holy thing. No, you can't do that. You've tried to do that, haven't you? Lord, I'll do better next week. I won't ever do this again. How's that working out for you, Scooter? Not really well, is it? Because we're the ones that are powering that. That's not where the juice should come from. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who does it? It's the Holy Spirit that does this. It is not you. You should just get out of the way. I should just get out of the way. We're helpless without him. When we are weak, he is strong. He must increase, I must decrease. But we don't just let go and let God. You've heard that phrase, right? Just let go and let God. Okay, I, I know what they're talking about, and it's, and it's sweet, and it's valid. You don't want to strive. You don't want to get in God's way. I got that. But he does want us to do some things. We respond in obedience because we love him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We do not respond in obedience because it's the right thing to do or because we're supposed to do it. That's the law. That's not going to get it. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is who? It is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You mean it is not about me? 
So, here's a real life thing. What happens when you do fall down? What happens when you do sin? Real quick, this is 101 stuff too, but it's good. Own it. First thing is own it fully, the quicker the better, right? Don't rationalize it. Don't say it's the wife you gave me. Um, don't ignore it. Don't make it somebody else's fault. Don't let the grass grow under your feet with it. The Spirit is there to convict you. Let it go. Proverbs is full of admonitions for who's wise? It's the one who listens to a rebuke. It's the one who takes discipline. They're the wise ones. They're the ones who grow in the Lord. They're the ones that are happy. Embrace that help. Second, fix what you broke as much as you can and do it as quickly as you can. Repent of it. There's a concept. But here we go. Ask for forgiveness quickly, specifically and earnestly from the Lord and from whoever it was you offended. Be specific. Don't sit in the corner and put on the I'm a sinner dunce cap. Ask for forgiveness from the Lord and move on. Get over it. Join the club of people who struggle with sin and rejoice that you don't have to carry it. You are forgiven. Is that awesome or what? So this guilt thing, this, oh, I'm just, uh, no. That's not Christ in you. So this mandate, this is what I want you to get. Yes, we are supposed to be holy. No, it is not beyond the Holy Spirit's power to do that in us. And it is absolutely lockstep part of our sanctification. If you have this much logic, if you're supposed to conform to the image of Christ, is there any sin in that? Well, there isn't, is there? He's perfect. The more we get into his image, the less we can suborn sin. Now, here's the thing. It is not scary. It can no longer be intimidating. It is part of normal Christian life. Don't make my error. Don't do what Brad did. He was a moron. Embrace that. Because he's doing it in you. Number three, how the Holy Spirit leads and does not lead. So we're talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in you in the form of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, who is resident in your heart, who has changed your heart, who has flipped your life around. And he absolutely is in there. You are the sanctuary. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So how does that work? Well, we're not gonna get through all that today, obviously, but Christendom in general has suffered some bad teaching on that. It suffered some misunderstanding about the role of the Holy Spirit. 
to the point where the Spirit's function and the Spirit's work has been kind of abused and trampled on. Now, I will confess, this is like confession day. I will confess that the Bible-believing, doctrine-loving, conservative-minded, and reformed crowd, of which I am a part, can tend to overreact to the abuse of the Holy Spirit. It is appropriate, appropriate for a Christian to say, no, that's wrong. But it is just as wrong for me to go the other direction and downgrade or dismiss or downplay the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Cannot make that mistake. And it's easy to make. But it's a bad mistake to make. We can't de-emphasize the Holy Spirit. We have to be centered on that. Scripturally, it says, okay, let's get into this. This is practical. There are only two places in the New Testament where it talks to us about being led by the Spirit. There's two. Galatians 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The context of that verse is not talking about making decisions in non-moral areas, who to vote for, where to live, none of that. The context is righteous living. The context is that the Holy Spirit is to incline us to follow Christ, to live like him, to let him live through us which takes care of a lot of those other problems. That's being led by the Spirit. It's not the only way. Galatians 5, 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That means you're not under the law, you're under grace. Through faith, that means that grace will power your righteous deeds that is different from having a to-do list of things you're supposed to do. It's having some begrudging litany of what you have to do to please God. Completely different thing. It is very similar to the notion of conscience. The Holy Spirit will press us to do what we already know to do. He will help us in that. 99 times out of 100, you know what to do, right? It's not a question of, I don't know what to do. Sometimes, very rarely, you know what to do. It's just doing it that's the hard part. He's there to help you. The Holy Spirit is not an answer book for all the little decisions of life. All the little, this is all non-moral issues. His leading, and yes, he absolutely leads us in different ways. I will never be able to talk to you about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit will lead you in your life. That is a very personal and it's an intimate thing. And it's different for all of us. I will give you some cautions and some biblical principles, but he's one, he, the Holy Spirit, Christ in you, so different. So varied, it's as varied as we are. But yet he deals with us kindly and individually in all those things. You do have inclinations, 
that may well be God-breathed. Um, it's kind of, the Spirit is unsearchable, the Bible says. What needs caution is when we say things like, God told me to do this, or God told me to do that, or I feel that God is leading me to do this. He can. not saying he can't. I'm saying there's a caution that we should, as wise Christians, listen to. Here's a list. I'm going to give you a list, which is an illustration of why the God told me phrase is worrisome. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. You're on holy ground. Take your shoes off. I'm going to tell you all the things that I'm going to do with you and what's going to happen in the future. God spoke and both prescribed and inscribed the Ten Commandments on the top of a mountain far away. He spoke there. And the Israelites miles and miles away, saw that and were terrified. God spoke and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him at Jesus' baptism. Wilford announced to his small group that God spoke to him and told him to buy that new bass boat that he had always wanted. You see that illustration? There's something that we see in ministry with the God told me or the God's leading me that I just want to share because knowing what the Holy Spirit doesn't do is sometimes just as effective as teaching what he does. When we hear these things, oftentimes it's, it's very rare that it isn't something that they wanted to do anyway. It's very rare that it isn't something pleasant. I, I just don't hear, God told me to go to Somalia and die of AIDS, preaching the gospel. But a lot of other things that aren't too present. We hear that a lot when there's a problem that seems intractable, intractable and this, is that a word? Sorry. It seems like a really difficult problem that they can't see their way through, and yet this gets them out of that. It shuts off any examination or any contradiction, doesn't it? If Wilford says, God told me, what have I got to say? If Ralph tells me, God told me to move to Cleveland, don't talk to me, Ralph. Talk to Allied Van Lines. Get going. That's not always wise, is it? Here's the other thing. It is often at the odds with God's word. I'll give you an example that has happened over and over and over. Tough situation in a marriage. Guy wants out. He comes to us and he says, give us all kinds of Bible verses about God wants him to be happy. He wants him to be free of the evildoer. So obviously God is leading him to divorce his wife. No. I have to say, um, in my book that I've recommended, which has been good, Rest of the Gospel, okay, there is, there's something, they, they messed up, some, just one little thing, I don't want to throw out the baby bathwater because it's a great book. On page 200, 
It equates you listening to God. It says, don't just read the Bible, listen for God. Okay. The Word of God is of absolute importance. Okay, sign me on that list. Equally important is the direct word of his spirit to your spirit. No, it is not. No, it is not. Aren't you the same people that are say, I'm a sinner? But I'm going to use that filter to decide what God says, opposed to what he says in his book? Oh, no. Very bad idea. I know what they're saying. God bless them. They want to... They want you to listen for the Holy Spirit. They want you to be attentive to the Holy Spirit. That's the point. It doesn't mean to be, but do you equate those two? You better not. (laughs) Better not do that. But I still love the book. God is glorified when we make decisions, when when we act living through him. You have great freedom in non-moral issues. Got to get that in, okay? There's a whole world of your choices that God has not given you. He's given you great freedom in. There is no little pinpoint dot of God's will in all these things. It doesn't exist. If you're one of those people that are trying to find the pinpoint dot of God's will, you're going to be frustrated a lot. Because if you're off of it, it's horrible. No, you have some freedom. We also see folks <laughs> seeing things in Scripture that are just taken totally out of context. Um, let's say you had to choose a new employee and you had some several to choose from and in your devotions that morning you read about Samson. Would you then go to work and choose the candidate with the longest hair? (laughs) There is sometimes an over-reliance on circumstances or song lyrics or timing or coincidences. Driving by a keep right sign is not God's way of telling you how to vote in the primaries. Now, absolutely God leads us. John 16 informs us. I'm going to read this to you. This will help. I still, this is Jesus talking. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There's three principles that come out of that in the leading of the Holy Spirit. One, there's an affinity for truth. Wherever truth is, that's the coin of our realm. Now, a truth is not the whole truth. Jesus is the whole truth. So you've got to be careful of focusing on one. But the truth, that's where we're going to start. That's where the, the Holy Spirit's going to lead us. Second, it's seamless, it's seamless with Scripture. He's not going to tell you two different ways. When he's written something down, listen. And third, it's a Christ focus. You see the Christ focus in that verse? He shows you Christ. He leads you to Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to push all things Christ. So now, I want a quick 
recap of these two weeks. You know that your old self is dead. And you've got to get that before you get Christ in you, the hope of glory. The old you is gone. You know that. You know you are not a sinner. You just struggle like we all do with indwelling sin. Different thing. You know that your life is new. You know that sin does not have an ultimate power over you. You know that the Holy Spirit is resident in your heart. He is Christ in you. You now live and think and see the world above the line. You may down and be down the muck and mire, and yes, there's trouble and suffering for us all, but you're going to see above. The reason we can go through suffering as Christians and not be derailed is because we know that not in the past and not in the present and nothing in the future will separate us from the love of Christ. He's with us always. We are in him. And with just that nugget, we have a tremendous perspective on suffering. We can do it. You know what to do when you fall to sin. You know the Holy Spirit does lead you and you will be cautious and he will be sweet. You now have an antidote for the drift. Now, this is the encouragement part. I want you to know, if I can get through this, that I see this in you. One of the sweet things about being in a position of leadership is that you have a front row seat to the good and bad, but the good is awesome. I see you guys taking care of one another in ways that blow me away. And what's my natural reaction? I rejoice that the Lord is working through you. It's not just you're doing good stuff because it's on your list. It is a genuine, Christ is living through me and so I'm gonna take care of this. It's all over this place. It's, I, I have no words for it. Glory to God for that. Because that's what happens when Christ lives in you. And I see it all the time. It's, it's astounding. When this Christ in you thing is a reality for you, you are then being what God created you to be originally. We were meant to be in the garden. We were meant to commune with him. We were meant to take care of the earth with the Lord. You're getting back to that if Christ is in you. No, we're still in a mess earth. The earth is the sewer of sin. I got it but you still can have that perspective. The rest of your life changes, just like with salvation. When you got saved, your life changed. Like I said, Christ's resurrection changes everything. 
but it's different. There's contentment there. If Christ is in you, if Christ is living through you, there's satisfaction. There's also excitement. You see the earthly things, but you see them through God's eyes. You see his plan, not just the problem. Remember how Jesus lived? Well, now that's kind of fun. That's kind of satisfying. That is a life that's worth living. And even though that benefits you, more important, that glorifies God. That's what you're made for. That's why we're here. Remember, your sanctification is not to get you into heaven. It's not to make you happy. It's not to sell books for crossways. It is that you are conformed to the image of Christ. And in that, he is glorified. He's the firstborn of many brothers, of those who are conformed to his image. You're not going to live on your own anymore. You're not going to do life on your own. Do you see how this is the antidote for the drift? I'm not just in neutral now. I'm not the engine. The Lord's the engine. But I'm going. Yes, I fall down. Join the club. But I'm not going to stay down because he has forgiven me. I'm going to make things right. I'm, I'm going to learn from that. We're going on. You're not a slave to the news cycle anymore. You're not worried and fearful about what's going to happen in the world. You can't be. You can't do that and have Christ and live in you at the same time. I can't be wringing my hands about what's happening in China because Jesus Christ isn't worried about that, is he? He's in control of that. That's a great perspective. That's a freeing perspective. That is a fun life. Fear ceases when you have your eyes above the line. When you live above the line, fear is not a big thing. The difficult, even horrible suffering that inevitably comes to us has a context. It allows us to see our Savior beyond it. And it is not just pie in the sky, just suffer through this until you get to heaven. No, no, no. It is now. This perspective is now. The abundant life is now. Yes, it will be better in heaven. But you're not supposed to sit here like a grumpy dog waiting until heaven. It's now. It's awesome. So, again, I could, I could go on and on about how this life is awesome and how it changes because of what he does in us. But I think you get it. And my prayer has been for weeks that the understanding of this 
that you died and were resurrected with Christ, and that now he lives in you. He lives through you. Will change everything in our lives. It's simple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we, we cannot thank you enough for what you have done for us. The idea that you would save us when we were sinners, that you would draw us into your family when we were your enemies, that you would actually die for us and pay our price so that we could be with you forever is beyond our comprehension. It, it is so marvelous that it is hard to grasp, but we know it's true. So for those of us who you have been so kind to, to save us, Lord, we pray that this becomes real for us. We pray that our lives are not structured to do the right things, but that we instead are conformed to you, that we are more like you day to day. We will confess our sins in the future. We know that you are gracious and that you forgive our sins. Again, praise we don't have enough of for you for these things. But we ask that that sink in so that every day from here until you take us home, you live through us. It, it, it's almost as if, even if it were difficult, even if it were painful, it would be worth it. But yet you just shower us with all the blessings in the heavenly places. Um, it's, you're beyond all we can ask or imagine. So we thank you. We submit to you cheerfully and joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen.